Welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 9th of February with me, Ian Welsh. Coming up is a conversation between Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson and Mura Technologies Head of Sustainability, Jeff Brighty. They spoke about the capabilities of advanced chemical recycling for breaking down plastics and the role of new EU legislation in shaping the technology's future. That's to come. First, though, is some sustainable business news. A new report from Human Rights Watch accuses big carmaker brands of failing to minimise the risks of forced labour in aluminium supply chains originating in the Chinese region of Xinjiang. Among the brands named are General Motors, Tesla, BYD, Toyota and Volkswagen. The Chinese authorities have faced a number of accusations of forced labour in the region involving Uyghur and other Turkic Muslim peoples being coerced into work via government-backed labour transfer programmes. HRW's report finds that some car makers have succumbed to Chinese government pressure to apply weaker human rights and responsible sourcing standards at their Chinese joint ventures than in their operations elsewhere, increasing the risk of exposure to forced labour in Xinjiang. Car companies are accused of not properly mapping aluminium supply chains and therefore not being fully aware of potential links to the region. Human Rights Watch reviewed online Chinese state media articles, company reports and government statements and found credible evidence that aluminium producers in Xinjiang are participating in labour transfers. Human Rights Watch also uncovered evidence that fossil fuel companies that supply coal to aluminium producers in Xinjiang have received labour transfer workers at their coal mines. The European Commission has recommended a 90% cut in net greenhouse gas emissions across the EU by 2040, a target that is expected to test willingness across Europe to get to grips with the big challenges that must be overcome if climate change is to be tackled effectively. There are elections to the European Parliament this coming June, and the climate agenda is now entering a critical phase as emissions, cuts to agriculture and other sensitive sectors begin to bite. The Commission did weaken some proposed cuts that would impact agriculture following ongoing protests from farmers about emissions rules. The proposals will be voted on by the new European Parliament following the elections, and current polling suggests that there may be a shift to the political right in the makeup of the new Parliament, meaning stricter environmental policies would be less likely to pass. The Republic of Ireland is the latest country to introduce a national deposit return scheme for plastics bottles and drinks cans. Customers will pay a small premium when they purchase a drink in a bottle or can, which will be repaid in full when the container is returned to a participating retailer. Deposits will vary from 15 cents for smaller containers and 25 cents for those over 500 millilitres. Almost 5 million drinks contained in single-use containers are consumed in the Irish Republic every day. The scheme will eventually have more than 2,000 return points, most of which will have reverse vending machines for deposit returns via vouchers that can be used to pay for goods or be exchanged for cash. Smaller retailers will be able to deal with returns over the counter. CDP, formerly known as the Carbon Disclosure Project, has released its annual corporate A-lists disclosing the companies that are leaders on reporting on emissions and forest and water impacts. The latest climate change A-list contains 346 companies and CDP reported a significant increase in both quality and quantity of climate disclosures year on year. CDP itself tightened requirements for A-list status, requiring full verification of scope 1 and 2 emissions, up from 70% last year. The numbers making the forests and water A-lists were more disappointing, with 30 and 101 companies on each respectively. Only 10 companies made all three lists. Next up is a conversation Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson had recently with Mura Technologies Head of Sustainability, Jeff Brighty. 
so Jeff, I'd love to just start by asking you, what is advanced or sometimes called chemical recycling of plastic? And what are the polymers that it can process? I would describe advanced or chemical recycling as a whole new set of processes that are coming to scale now that can take waste materials, particularly polymer materials, also biomass, and convert those back into useful feedstocks for a range of industries. For plastics advanced recycling, which is what Mura does, what we're doing is we're taking the waste plastic that's currently being sent to energy from waste, and therefore being burnt, and we're taking that material and using our hydrothermal process to break the polymeric material down into short-chain hydrocarbons. And then through a cracking process, we're able to make that material available as oils to the pet chem sector. The sorts of polymers that we're looking at, or the plastics, will be, you'd be very familiar with in your house. These are the films and flexibles that frequently aren't recyclable at scale or put back into anything that I would say is beneficial use to the value chain. They might be taken into things like lumber or garden furniture, but they're not coming back around the circular economy. So what we're trying to do is to reprocess that waste plastic material, avoid it being burnt, and then bring that into a hydrocarbon facility like ours and push that into the chemical sector. And that material can then go back into future plastic packaging as recycled content. So the sorts of polymers that we're working with are polyethylene and polypropylene. Sometimes they could be coming from multi-layer packaging like crisps. Certainly in the UK, we eat more crisps than anybody else, it would seem. So we have a huge demand to deal with that waste. These processes can be applied to a whole range of plastics. The challenge really becomes partly about the amount of feedstock that could be available, what the additives are in that plastic, and whether that can be processed to give you a high-quality product at the end. And also some of the plastics, like PVC, would contain chloride. That might cause you problems with your process, particularly if it's a wet process, because you might start to form things like hydrochloric acid. Our process is a wet process. It's uh, using supercritical water. Under those conditions, we are looking to use a high-pressure state in that process. But we want to make sure that the plastics going in are of the right sort so that we produce a high-quality product to going into our petrochemical value chain, whilst also not damaging our plant. In terms of the enabling landscape and environment for what's quite a new technology, so the EU is currently examining two relevant pieces of legislation, so the Single-Use Plastics Directive and the Plastics and Packaging Waste Regulation. How could these potentially shape the future of chemical recycling? These are really important regulatory steps that are coming in now, and they're actually being mirrored globally in some respects, certainly in the UK as well. We're looking at something that's similar to the plastic packaging tax. So I start with the packaging and packaging waste regulation. So this is an update on the existing directive. And the aim really is to drive more resource efficiency in packaging. That is looking at recyclability so that more packaging is able to be recycled through conventional treatment processes such as mechanical recycling. But then also to include recycled content. Any new packaging that will be placed on the market after 2030, for example, should have some recycled content within it. Now, the challenge is for certain types of packaging, you need to have what's called contact sensitive or food grade. And to bring recycled content into a food grade packaging type is a challenge. It seems that there are some advanced processes that will deliver the hydrocarbons necessary to make that packaging. Chemical recycling or advanced recycling is certainly one of those technology families that should be able to generate the material that can go back into contact sensitive applications, whether that's food or even medical applications. That's a very important directive because it's creating the market pull, the market size, depending on how much packaging is placed on the market. 
we will have a view based on the content that's going to be in this packaging, how much we'll need to provide the brands that will want that packaging moving forward. The single-use plastic directive, though, is an interesting one because for chemical recyclers, it's important that we know when we provide our recycled hydrocarbons to a petrochemical company who will then turn that into the plastic, how much of the material we produce going into their so-called crackers that are producing the ethylene or the polypropylene at the other end, how much of that will be counted? Because a crackers produce a variety of products, there's a debate going on now around something called mass balance accounting. For two reasons, really, it's important that the single-use plastic directive gives the right calculation point for those pet chems. We're looking for something called fuel use exempt. This is in debate at the moment in the European Union member states. We expect it to be decided by the end of March. And if it is fuel use exempt, what it will mean is two things. One is there'll be enough supply from what is likely to be built as infrastructure for chemical or advanced recycling to meet that need, specified in the packaging and packaging waste regs. But also it can be done at a sufficient scale that's affordable to be built and then the plants to be run. If the yield is very low or accepted to be low using other calculation methodologies, it will become very difficult for the pet chemists to make that supply happen economically. Together, these are both happening at the same time, which is an interesting moment in the life of recycling and packaging and plastics. If we get this right, then this will be a very big signal to bring chemical recycling forward to meet that packaging demand and make, hopefully, for the first time, a proper circular economy and drive our recycling rates to a greater height. And the regulations will undoubtedly cover a lot of different aspects of plastics and packaging and circularity, and we'll be setting some targets. What role do you think that chemical recycling of plastics will have in delivering on these regulations? For the food-related packaging, we are in a place where mechanical recycling really can't deliver to the quality needed, both in terms of how the plastic is then made and applied into future packaging, but also from a food safety point of view. So this contact sensitivity is really important. You don't really want to be just washing and then remelting plastic that may have had contact, say, with meat, say chicken, and that goes then round back the food chain. The risk to public health is really quite high. So the packaging regulations overall are really quite stringent on the quality of the packaging going forward. And what chemical recycling can do is generate the recycled oils that can go back into that packaging. Because in effect, it's going around the whole process. Again, it's being treated like a fossil oil. What that means is that you will end up with fossil equivalent packaging going forward, but it will have recycled content in it because it's come from us recycling the old plastic. That could be really important. Otherwise, what you'll find is that by 2030, the brands who are placing this packaging on the market. So, you know, we want packaging to keep food as long as it possibly can alive. You know, a lot of carbon goes into making the food products. So we want to keep that for as long as possible. If that packaging is not for recycled content, the brands are not able to put that packaging on the market. Over the next four to five years, the whole value chain has to come together to make this happen, to allow our recycled content to get into that packaging. And there's quite a lot to be done between now and 2030 to enable that supply to happen. But we have a real opportunity here to really make a difference, not just to provide the packaging, but also to decarbonize the value chain as well, because we're not taking fossil oil out of the ground. And that's a massive step forward. So how can chemical recycling best be scaled as a solution from here? I think the first thing is that everybody needs to buy into the regulations that are coming forward. I think the member states understand that recycling rates are not as good as they should be and that we're sending 11 million tonnes of packaging for incineration every year. And that's producing probably 20 million tonnes of CO2 into the environment. So the current system isn't working as optimally as it should do. What chemical recycling can do is it needs to get to scale. 
is provide a viable alternative to that material being lost and burnt and fossil oil being taken out of the ground. How does it get to scale? Everybody's got to buy into this. I think there's an acceptance that recycling will have to be significant investment into future recycling. It's not just about the chemical side. There's also better waste collection and sorting. That needs to happen as well. Us in our houses, we've got to decide, are we going to place that flexible packaging into a bin or take it to the supermarket, as we're often doing now in the UK? And then that material has a very good chance then of finding a recycling process to process it to something valuable. So there is that side. But then we've got to build these new plants and the volume of material that will be needed will be in excess of a million tonnes of recycled hydrocarbons. And that's what's going to go into the packaging. So that could be one and a half million tonnes of capacity. These plants that are going to be built will need to be of a good size, at least 25 to 50,000 tonnes. And across the UK, the EU, to make that technology available to as many people as possible, as many cities as possible, that will then have the best chance of generating the volume of material to then go back around the value chain. Some chemical recycling processes operate at very small volumes, a few thousand tonnes per annum. They may be very useful in, say, a hospital environment to deal with a local waste source. But if we want to address the millions of tonnes of recycled material needed, we will need a good number of quite large output plants, 50 to 100,000 tonne plants, to make it economically viable to deliver that supply. And some technologies are really getting to that space, including ours. Beyond the responsibility of individual households and organisations, how can we ensure that plastics recycled into useful hydrocarbons then remain part of a closed-loop system and promote circularity? I think there's a number of solutions that we need to consider that all need to be scaled. Even ourselves as an advanced recycler, we recognise that we should be using less resource on the planet. I think everybody knows that we're over-consuming and obviously taking oil out of the ground is now a real challenge with the dash for net zero. With materials already in circulation, it's like, well, let's give it a second or a third or a fourth life. Just in the way that we've looked at aluminium cans, for example. The next step then obviously is about reuse. We've got to do something about how we can keep a product as useful as possible for as long as possible. But when it comes to things like food packaging, a lot of this will be effectively single use and will then need to be regenerated. The first thing is to see what can be done in design. We're part of a coalition called CFLEX, which is the Flexible Packaging Coalition. And what that is trying to do is meeting one of the requirements of the packaging and packaging waste regulations is to simplify the design of packaging so that it still delivers the functionality needed, but is easier to recycle. And if that material can better go around the mechanical recycling route, then that's fine. That apparently has the lower carbon footprint of the recycling strategies out there. But we recognise that not all packaging will be able to go down that route. Moreover, for flexible packaging going forward, you need to bring that recycled content back. What advanced or chemical recycling is really uniquely able to do is to take the material that might be very heavily contaminated, for example, with food residues, or may have different polymers in it. It's recyclable, but it may be like to be recyclable in our process. Then we provide that back as in effect, the highest quality product to go back around the food packaging system. And so our job essentially is to deal with the material that would otherwise be lost, bring that background into food packaging. But whilst recognising the whole quantity of material to be recycled needs to go up, and we will need improvements to the mechanical recycling system, the reuse systems, as well as advanced chemical recycling coming through. I would say also that we've become attuned to plastic as a problem. And I think we as a company never see plastic as a problem. We just see it as a resource. But we hope that by providing a solution to some of the packaging that people have traditionally put into a landfill or sent to incineration, they will suddenly see this material is valuable. They will then do the right thing. So we need to take everybody with us to do the right thing and put the material in the right bin. We've all done wish cycling. 
we've all put plastic in the bin thinking, oh, well, I'm sure they'll deal with it. And invariably, it's not dealt with. We need to do the behavioural change and give people hope and the trust in the system, which has been a bit broken over the last few years, to say, actually, we've learned to come up with new solutions and we can now make this work. The idea of trust is quite interesting. It's something I wanted to pick up on. Given the inevitable scrutiny that comes with newer, potentially disruptive technologies like advanced chemical recycling, what is the right level of transparency? And I wondered if green hushing is a concern for this sector. I think without doubt, any new sector coming to scale, particularly one like ours, where in our process, we are using high energy. People are concerned that, yes, you can recycle this material, but you're doing it at a very high environmental cost. Taking our process, we basically heat water to high temperature and pressure. So we're talking 300 bar pressure, 450 degrees, and that creates this supercritical reaction environment into which the plastic goes. That is energy intensive. The situation then becomes, well, how do you justify that? How do you compare what you're doing to the existing system? There's this wonderful set of tools called life cycle assessments, the various models that we could use. The first thing is to subject your data to an independent LCA. We've been fortunate to have partnered with an organization called the University of Warwick and their WMG department. And they have conducted an independent LCA because it's been funded by a UK government. It wasn't funded by us. And we published the results. And what's that shown is the current system is really very carbon intensive already because for every tonne of plastic we recycle, if you incinerated that, that's nearly two tonnes of CO2 going into the environment. Then having produced the hydrocarbon, you have to ask the question, well, what's the equivalent material to the fossil system that uh, is currently in place? We look at the benchmark of a substance called naphtha, which is what the products that we make and is the one that's widely used as a feedstock going into production of plastic. Our carbon footprint of our plant is at all less than the fossil equivalent production of naphtha in the UK. Not only are we avoiding burning plastic, so that's a scope for saving for the planet of nearly two tonnes per tonne. We're also producing naphtha at roughly the same or less than the fossil equivalent. That's a great start. Our first plant, which we are building now, is very near completion into commissioning in Teesside in the north of England. That plant is a very unoptimised plant, but our next generation ones will have certainly energy efficiency steps like heat recovery. We may be able to recycle our processed gas rather than burn that to heat the boiler for the supercritical water and to take advantage of the low carbon energy that is now becoming widely available for industry. So we believe that we will be able to produce at our next plant, which will be built will be in Germany, a place called Berlin, with our partner company Dow. That carbon footprint of that material will be significantly less than the fossil equivalent of that produced in Germany. It's not just about the production of hydrocarbons. We have to demonstrate to everybody with independent life cycle assessments that the overall system is less carbon intensive. I and mean, actually, we're winning. And there's been a number of other studies going on. I think the other important thing to say is that as our process is a second generation process, we've learned from some of the challenges that have faced uh, processes like pyrolysis, where they are working at a high energy intensity, but they're also generating solid waste in a char. And our process doesn't do that. Per unit of energy going in, we are 50% more efficient than pyrolysis. We try to learn from what's happened before and then really make sure that our products and therefore the scope three we're passing on down into our value chain is as low as it possibly can be. It'll take a little while for us to get there, but we have a real net zero ambition to drive down our carbon intensity. At the moment, as you would know, energy prices are really high. So we want to do that as efficiently as possible to reduce our consumption of energy and our, our operating costs. This is the right way to go. It is going to take a couple of years to get there, but we're very sure that we will be able to achieve that well before 2030. 
clearly you are taking quite a transparent approach to it as well. Presumably a lot of these materials publicly available. Yes, that's right. The life cycle assessment produced by the University of Warwick was published in 2023. And at the same time, a review was produced by the European Union's Joint Research Centre, JRC. And they also concluded two things, really. One is that we were complementary to the mechanical recycling system when we take different waste feed, which we believe we are. We are trying to take the unrecyclable waste plastic that is otherwise going to incineration. But also that in comparison to the current process, which essentially is sending it to energy from waste, we are significantly reducing the carbon footprint of the whole system. And some research that's going to be published early in 2023 from the University of Warwick as a follow-up demonstrates that the addition of our process, so a chemical recycling process to the existing waste management system in the UK, would reduce the overall carbon footprint by about 40%. It's not just you get better products and you're not losing material you're also decarbonising the waste management sector. We think that's a really important step forward. What do you think is the ultimate potential for chemical recycling? Having seen the recent regulatory intentions of the European Union and indeed the UK to bring more recycled content into packaging and other materials, also automotive is going through this process at the moment to bring more recycled content into plastics-based materials such as bumpers and so on. That the intention of the regulators is to be harder on anybody that's making anything to make those products as resource efficient as is possible. What we think is that we're filling a gap in the market. We're filling a gap which no one else can currently do. That's driving the waste and the losses that we're otherwise seeing. So the potential should be, if the regulations and the intention is to be more resource efficient moving forward, chemical recycling in all its forms, and it's not just our process, there'll be other ones such as depolymerization, looking at things like PET bottles. We want to keep all these materials in circulation. And I think as a sector, The future is really bright and we're at a very critical point now, but if the intention is right, we should be able to get to a scale that meets the needs of the pet chems. One thing I haven't mentioned is that petrochemical companies deal in huge volumes of oils on a daily basis. To make it worth their while engaging with the waste sector, which is kind of where we've come from, we've got to be able to match their needs and their expectations as well. It behoves us to get to that scale as quickly as possible. But if we do, the potential of supply of recycled content to all sorts of sectors, it could be automotive, it could be food and drink, is potentially really there for everyone. And that should decarbonise those sectors as well as make them more resource efficient and keep as much as we can the oil in the ground whilst we're recycling all the material that's already in our hands. Well, we'll be looking out to see how the technology and the enabling legal and social landscape develop and continuing these conversations along the way. Jeff Friday from Mira Technology, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much, B. Do look out for the next in our Factory Voices series and an online Q&A on the potential impact of regenerative agriculture for the apparel sector. We'll be back with the weekly briefing on Monday. That's it for now, though. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.